Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6. It's on page 522 of your book of praise. There we find God's word summarized as follows. Since according to God's righteous judgment we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man, because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God, so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator, who at the same time is true God, and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, later had it proclaimed by the patriarch and prophets, and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son, After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 79, the stanzas 3 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that also includes you boys and girls, in the early 1970s, there was a folk song making the realms that meant something like this. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mummy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I'm always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why now I suffer from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally that I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy, now I have learned the lesson this has taught, 
that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. In order to make a point, this folk song exaggerates somewhat, but basically that is the thinking of modern man. And the point is well made. It is human nature not to want to own up to anything you have done wrong. But that's not just something we encounter in the world. We also encounter that amongst us as Christians. For that is how it started in paradise. And therefore, what is, that is what we are also like as human beings. Adam and Eve shifted the blame on anyone except themselves. And we're still doing that. And that is what the Heidelberg Catechism confronts us with this afternoon. For in question and answer six, we ask the terrible question whether it was God who made man wicked and perverse. And in question and answer nine, we imply that God has been unreasonable and too demanding. We ask, is God then not unjust by requiring in his law that which man cannot do? And in question and answer 10, we suggest that God should simply turn the other cheek and let bygones be bygones. And then finally, in question and answer 11, we appeal to God's mercy as if it might reveal some grandfatherly soft spot. You see, the catechism follows the way of man's reasoning, our human nature. The authors knew, based on God's word and their own experience, that man does not want to take blame for his own guilt. But God teaches us that we are responsible for our own sins. And therefore, man must also pay for his own sin. There is no longer any way out. As should be evident by now from the previous Lord's days, all the doors have been shut. We have to pay. And it is an enormous payment that we must make. It is the great payment for our for all our sins. And that's also what I will preach to you about this afternoon. It is about the great payment for our sin. We will see in the first place that we must pay, in the second place that we must play, pay, and in the third place that we must pay. We must pay. In other words, we are responsible for our own sins. That is what the Catechism teaches us. That is also what Ezekiel, who lived in Babylon at the same time as Daniel, wanted to impress upon God's covenant people who are about to be exiled. These people have twisted the truth. For there was a certain saying, a certain proverb that made the rounds, and that distorted, that distorted the truth of the Scriptures. For you see, sayings, although Sayings, although often telling eternal truths in memorable ways, can also be deceiving. A saying as such may sound wise and clever, but the truth of it do not, uh, does not always apply in all instances and situations. And so you have to be careful. And that is clear from what we read together about a certain saying mentioned in Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel, who was also among the exiles as a prophet of the Lord, was sent 
in order to proclaim God's justice and truth to those about to be exiled. The Lord wanted to use him in order to bring about repentance and to keep these people focused on the great mercy of God. But this could only be accomplished if these people realized why they were being sent into exile in the first place. He wanted them to come into insight. He wanted them to know about his God's mercy and justice and how that functions. For after all, they are still God's people. Even though God is going to send them into exile and send them to that pagan city of Babylon, nevertheless, they are still his people. But they also had to know why that would come about. They had to know about their own guilt. They have to repent. And that was Ezekiel's message to them. And now here in chapter 18, he comes again with that message that God wants him to pass on to them. But they do not want to hear any message of doom. And so they have their answer ready. They already see him coming. They do not want to be held responsible for the predicament that they are in. And so they say to him, The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does that mean? Well, these Israelites were an agrarian people, and they lived close to the land. And they, at times, enjoyed the fruit of the land even before the fruit had completely ripened. And that's what they sometimes did with the grapes which they grew. They would occasionally eat them before they were fully ripe. Such unripe grapes would be quite sour. And the eating of such grapes would do something strange to one's teeth. It would make them dull or blunted. It would give the sensation of the teeth being badly worn down. This sensation was likely due to the acidity in those grapes. And of course, such sensation would be felt only by the person himself who ate those grapes. And those who actually chewed on those unripe grapes would get blunted teeth from them. It was not something which you could catch from somebody else, like the flu or something. No, if you ate those grapes, only your own teeth would be affected. And now you can see the gist of this. It was a form of wry humor and sarcasm. For what were they really saying? They were poking fun at Ezekiel. They were implying that Ezekiel was saying that it was because their fathers ate sour grapes that now they are getting blunted teeth from them. For Ezekiel says that they are being punished for something that the parents have done. They are the ones who are being held responsible for them being sent into exile. Their fathers are the ones who sinned, and therefore they should not be held responsible. This prophet, this proverb, this saying, was a sarcastic attempt to mock the prophet of the Lord who would hold them responsible for being sent into exile. They said, this really doesn't have anything to do with us. Don't you point your finger at us. For what you are saying is ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. And so they spread this proverb in response to the preaching of the prophet Ezekiel in order to ridicule him 
in order to make him out to be a fool. It's obvious that they did not like this prophet of the Lord. They did not like this man who had the audacity to blame them for the position that they are in. And they viewed themselves as innocent victims. But in rebelling Ezekiel against Ezekiel in this way, they also rebelled against God. For what does the law say? It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the father, of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. No doubt these exiles were well acquainted with those words. But they did not like those words of the Lord. They asked, isn't that unjust? Do we have to pay for the sins of our fathers? And so in this way they rebelled against God and twisted his word. Of course, the saying as such was not wrong, and it does have a ring of truth to it. If, for example, your father is an alcoholic and drinks himself to death, then that's not your fault. That's the obvious conclusion. It's a direct result of his personal sin. However, his sin also affects others, especially the children. We tend to take over the sins of our parents. And therefore, when the Lord says that he punishes us for the sins of the fathers, then you have to see that as a warning from God. He is concerned about the generations. He is concerned about our children. Our children watch us. They observe the things that we say and do. And they imitate us and take over our ways of doing things. For make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, if you are unfaithful to the Lord, then your children are likely to follow you in your unfaithfulness. If you are a drunkard or full of disrespect for others or rough in the mouth or dishonest in your dealings, then your children are likely to become that way as well. They learn from you and me. And if it is your habit to attend church only sporadically, then you may expect that your children will not be any different. Often it becomes worse. Or if it is your habit to treat your financial contributions to the church as if you were giving a tip to a waiter, and then your children are not likely to be, to be faithful in that regard either. A poor example begets an even poorer response for the next generation. And that is what the Lord means when he says that he will punish the children for the sins of the fathers. And therefore we have to be careful. We have to be careful how we conduct ourselves. But he does not mean to imply thereby that children have no responsibility of their own. On the contrary. And that is exactly what Ezekiel is trying to tell them. He says, you have learned from your parents and you are doing the same things, if not worse. It is true that each person is responsible for his own sins. But do not just restrict yourself to this half-truth but proclaim the whole counsel of God. He holds each and every one of you responsible for your own sins. You cannot hide behind the sins of your parents. 
Just because your parents were not faithful in certain things does not mean that you can use that as an excuse for your own sinfulness. And so proclaim your own innocence. It doesn't work that way. And you see, that is also what the Catechism teaches us here. It teaches us that God will not punish another creature for the sin we ourselves have committed. That is what the world does. It always wants to escape responsibility. For what do we see today? Society does not want to hold people responsible for their own actions. Criminal behavior is excused because the perpetrators are seen as victims of broken homes, or as victims of the abuse of their parents, or as victims, in one way or the other, of this cruel society itself, And as a result, the courts give out very lenient sentences to young people who have committed some very horrendous crimes. The Lord God does want to treat us with understanding. But he also holds us responsible for our sins. We have to do the same. And that is why Ezekiel does not go for that kind of philosophy, that kind of philosophy that those Israelites are proclaiming. He tells them that they cannot escape their own guilt. And they are not any less guilty than their own parents. And therefore he says, you must pay. For they are your sins, no one else's. And so the catechism says that God's demands that his justice be satisfied. And therefore we must make full payment. We cannot escape it. God's justice requires it. We must pay. There's no way out. We come to the second point. Ezekiel says the soul who sins is the one who will die. You see, there is no other way. Every single one of us is personally indebted to God. And we are indebted to him in ways that we cannot even begin to realize. For why did the Lord God create man? As you know, so that we could glorify him in all our works. We tend to forget that, don't we? Think about it. What is your motivation in doing the things that you do? Why do you attend church? Why do you pay for church and for school? so that you can go to heaven, so that you can earn your way there? If that were so, then you would not be any different than from a lot of other people in the world. Many people in Western society believe in heaven, but they don't believe in hell. If, for example, you were to ask your neighbor if he wants to go to heaven, then he will answer you in the affirmative. Most people believe that they will make it, too. For they do not believe that God would be so cruel and deny them a place in heaven. They will appeal to God's love. They say, God is a God of love, isn't he? Oh, sure, I may not be perfect, but it's God's job to forgive, isn't it? He looks at the heart and he knows that I want to do the right things. And so I have no doubt that he loves me, for he sees all the good works that I do. There's a country song that was popular some time ago, which had as theme, A Father's Love Never Ends. Amen. This is in reference to an earthly father, but also to our heavenly father. 
lesson that this song teaches is that our Father in heaven will always forget his anger and will always forgive our trespasses. And here, once again, we see that they proclaim only a half-truth. For the half-truth is that the Lord God will indeed forgive us our debts, no matter how great they are. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life, God will forgive you. And he will do that time and time and again. There is no limit to his forgiveness. That's true. In that sense, an earthly father will do the same. He will forgive his children time and again, for he dearly loves them. And he doesn't want to lose them. But there is so much more to God's love. There is also a limit. Indeed, if we are truly sorry for our sins, then he will forgive and forgive ad infinitum. But if we live and act as if he does not even accept, as if we owe him nothing, and then there will come a time where he will also reject us. And that is also what he is saying to the people of God. Ezekiel says, be careful. God will hold you responsible. For as Ezekiel says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. God is also a God who judges. That is how he loves. For to love means to make a choice. It means to make a choice between good and bad. It means to make a choice between good and evil. And God wants nothing to do with evil and with evil men. Can you imagine if he were to choose both the evil and the good, there would be no justice. That's not love. And therefore he will judge those who do not humble themselves before him and who do not lead lives of repentance. But the wisdom of the world says that we do not have to worry so much about our final state. As long as we're not too wicked, as long as we are kind to our children, for example, and make sacrifices for them and love them, as long as we provide for our families, and as long as we are kind to our fellow men, then the Lord will not reject us. Yet, the Lord God says that we must pay. The emphasis is now on payment. That brings us to our third point. We all deserve to die. As Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Also, as James says in chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Even the slightest mistake renders you and me guilty before God. We cannot appeal to our own goodness, nor can we appeal to the sins of our parents to excuse us. The Lord holds each and every one of us guilty for his own sin, and he dismisses all the ways in which we try to get out of our dilemma and guilt. He does not want us to come with our glib sayings and our generalizations. God's wrath rests on every one of us. If we seek our comfort in human wisdom, we will come to quite a rude awakening, just like the wise men and Belshazzar did in the court of Babylon. The Lord God will then say to us, away with you. 
I have given you my wisdom and you have rejected it. I will teach you to to unlearn those glib proverbs. All of you have acquired teeth which are set on edge. All of you are guilty before me. If you want to be sound again, you must pay for the sour grapes that you have eaten. But he also says something else. He says to those who realize how great a debt they owe to God, I will show love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that is the wonderful gospel we hear about in answer 18. For how does God show his love? He shows his love through the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. For question 15 asks, what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? And then we are pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is true and righteous and more powerful than all creatures. He has not eaten sour grapes. He did not sin. And so his teeth are not set on edge. And yet he did allow his teeth to become stunted. Not because he sinned, but because of your sin, because of my sin. And now he has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. How do we know this? From the gospel. From the good news of salvation. On earth, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness. And so he sharpened our teeth and restored our health. He paid for us. He paid for the sour grapes that we have eaten. In this way, Christ can now stand between God and man as our mediator. Only he can give us a sound set of teeth. And although we continue to eat from the forbidden fruit, Christ makes us eat from the fruit of the covenant. It is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we can eat of that wholesome food. And so again, it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom we need. And in him we see the great mercy of God. Thanks be to God, for else we would be condemned forever and ever. God visited his wrath upon him. And now we can also celebrate the fact at this time of the year that the Lord Jesus Christ was born in the flesh. He became like us in that he received human nature like us. He became a man. For only a man can pay for our sins. But at the same time he has to be true God. The Lord Jesus fulfilled that requirement perfectly. And now we can also share with him in the glory that is in store for all those who belong to him. If we hold on to that biblical truth, then the Lord will not only bless us, but also the generations after us, to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. Amen.